afternoon and welcome to the 204th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we continued the discussion of COVID-19 care, vaccines, and vaccination with Alicia Rankin and Carla Kearns. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 18th, 2021, there are 2,035,895 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 24 million 18,793 cases reported in the United States. There are 398,307 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States today, up from 390,195 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, former Waco council member Lawrence Johnson dies after bout with COVID-19. Author is J.B. Smith. This was published December 29th, 2020 in the Waco Tribune Herald. Lawrence Johnson, an attorney and civil rights leader who served for a decade on the Waco, Texas City Council, died December 25th after battling COVID-19, family members said. Johnson, 72, was hospitalized with the virus and placed on a ventilator in mid-December, attorney and friend Michael B. Roberts said. His death has simply been a gut punch, Roberts said. He said Johnson was at particular risk because he was African-American and had underlying health conditions. He was one of the people in a large group that didn't need to contract this illness, he said. He did have some underlying conditions that would exacerbate the effects of COVID-19, but we remained prayerful and hopeful. Son of a single mother, Johnson grew up in the Estella Maxi public housing complex in East Waco and rose to be the valedictorian of his segregated high school, Carver High. He earned a law degree from the George Washington University and returned to his native Waco to become one of its few black attorneys, as well as a government and civic leader. He is one of Waco's local heroes, as far as I'm concerned, Waco NAACP chapter President Peaches Henry said. Kind of issues I'm fighting for now. Lawrence was doing that long before I was. What I particularly admired about Mr. Johnson was that he was willing to have difficult conversations about race, racism, and inequity. He paved the way for the rest of us to continue that fight. Served from 1990 to 2000 on the Waco City Council, where he represented District 1, including East Waco, Timbercrest, Far South Waco, and his own neighborhood near McLennan Community College. He served as president of the Waco NAACP in the 1990s 
and at various times served as a board member for MCC, the Waco Plan Commission, Waco Housing Authority, and various community nonprofits. As a city council representative in the early 1990s, Johnson fought to make Martin Luther King Jr. Day a city holiday and to rename Lake Brazos Parkway as Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Johnson recalled in a 2014 interview with the Tribune Herald that it took him several years to get the political support for the name change, and he rejected counteroffers to rename El Elm Avenue for the civil rights hero. I wanted a street of the stature of Lake Brazos Parkway, he said. I would not have accepted Elm. We made a good choice. To me, it was a major coup during my time. It was very important to me and to my community. It showed that Waco was moving into the 21st century. Johnson also made waves in May 1998, when at a council meeting, he unexpectedly read a graphic historical narrative of the 1916 lynching of Jesse Washington into the record, then called for an official city denunciation of what was known as the Waco Horror. Johnson had grown up in Waco, but never heard of the lynching until seeing a photograph of it at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis in 1996. Johnson left the council after losing a bruising election battle with May Jackson in 2000, but the council in 2006 passed a resolution condemning the city's complicity in the lynching. Local effort to erect a historical marker about the Waco horror in downtown is in its final stages today with the Texas Historical Commission. The marker could see a dedication in May 2021, said Tony Herbert, a former council member involved in the effort. Herbert said she did not always agree with Johnson on policies, but she commended him for bringing up the Jesse Washington issue. She said when he did a public reading of the Jesse Washington story, everyone was aghast, but it takes people a long time to come around to the right side of history. Johnson grew up the son of Hazel Haynes, now 89, but childhood friend Linda Jan Lewis said he was the epitome of a child who was raised by a whole community of those who knew him at church and school. At Carver High School, he was voted male intellectual and graduated at the top of his class in 1967. He was a very good student at Carver High, said Lewis, who graduated from Carver two years before Johnson. He was a leader. Not many of us were surprised when he went to law school. He loved to argue and loved to be right. He was a hometown boy we were all proud of. He did not accept the expectations or limits of what was expected of a black boy growing up in Waco. Johnson graduated from Prairie View A&M University with a degree in electrical engineering, then earned his law degree with honors from the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. He began practicing law in 1976 in Pennsylvania before returning to his hometown where he was a defense attorney until his death. In Waco, he supported youth sports teams, was active in the Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity, and was a deacon at Carver Park Baptist Church. He is survived by his wife, Bernice Johnson, as well as four grown children and two grandchildren. Henry, who attended church with Johnson, said Johnson had a soft spot for children and young people and sometimes portrayed Santa Claus at events. When my son and I came to Waco in 2004, Lawrence just took my son under his wing, Henry said. When my son participated in the National History Fair, Lawrence would financially support him, and he wasn't the only one that Johnson did that for. Henry said that that same son who benefited from Johnson's attention and generosity finished law school this week.
Okay, I'm going to turn to the conversation for today. Really excited to introduce my two guests to you. Let me start with Dr. Carla Kearns. She's Assistant Professor of Medical Ethics and Internal Medicine at the University of Kansas in Kansas City, Kansas. She has published in the history of in the history, sociology, and ethics of medicine, and has been treating patients this past year through the COVID-19 pandemic, both those with COVID and whose care looks very different because of it. Her father-in-law died of COVID-19 in April, so this issue is personal for her. Let me also introduce Dr. Alicia Rankin, who is Associate Professor of History at Tufts University. She has published widely on the early history of pharmaceuticals and medical experiments, and she co-led the working group Testing Drugs and Trying Cures in the Pre-Modern World at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin. She has a PhD in the History of Science from Harvard University and was a postdoctoral fellow at Trinity College, University of Cambridge. Her latest book, The Poison Trials, Wonder Drugs, Experiment, and the Battle for Authority in Renaissance Science, just came out with the University of Chicago Press uh, and was reviewed today in Nature. So be sure to check that out. And I want to thank you both Carla and Alicia for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start. Um, it's okay. The way I usually do just to find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there today. Alicia, can I start with you, please? Yeah, sure. So I'm in Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston, where just yesterday we had the news that the first case of the British variant of COVID has arrived as we were all expecting it would at some point, but it's here now, so that's concerning. Um, in general, we're in the midst of a, a medium surge. It hasn't been quite as bad here in this time period as it had in some other states, but it hasn't been, I don't think it's good anywhere. <laughs> it hasn't been good. Um, so, and then we're just, I'm in the lull between semesters at the moment, but getting ready to teach again, which will be partially in person in the spring. Um, so that, that will be interesting. Oh, they're planning to go back then? They are, as of now, yeah. I mean, that, that could change. The, our president at Tufts is a physician himself and he is very up on the medical side of things. So um, that, that could change if it's too dangerous. But uh, we had a pretty successful fall semester that was um, partially in person. We didn't have as many cases as anyone had expected. Actually, in the Boston area, the we are, we're all, um, many schools in the Boston area are getting tested by the Broad Institute. So there is regular testing that the Broad Institute is, is running. And it was really successful in the fall in that the Boston Globe always reported two numbers in terms of percent positive, one with the universities and one without. And the university number was always lower. We, we brought it down because there was just so much testing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's Still, we're in the middle of a pandemic. It's, it's concerning. What about vaccine availability? Um, right now, it's just the um, frontline healthcare workers. They're starting to move into congregate care settings as well. Um, we're one of the few states that uh, vaccinating prisoners is one of the first stages. Um, but the general population is far down the road. But I've had a few friends in the healthcare field who have gotten vaccinated, which is always just like so exciting to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I love those when those pictures are up on the oh news my gosh, and they show like, nurses crying. Oh. Nurses don't cry. Well, usually not in photographs, at least. And to see those images are just amazing. Yeah, it, it, I, I wasn't expecting how emotional I would feel, especially hearing some people I know getting vaccinated. It's just like such a nice feeling. Mm. 
Carla, same question to you. Where are you calling from and uh, how's it looking there? Yeah, so I'm in Kansas City, um, which uh, Chiefs fans will know is at the border of Kansas and Missouri. Um, so uh, I'm, uh, I'm in Missouri right now, but, uh, but I work uh, two blocks into Kansas on the other side of the state line at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, and so I've, uh, I'm a practicing physician um, and have been seeing mostly non-COVID patients over the last nine months, although I've had um, some patients with COVID. And I've also um, been advising my son's school and a couple other schools in the area, working with the health department on equity issues around uh, testing and vaccination, um, and serving on my hospital's uh, ventilator triage committee, which mercifully has all been about writing the guidelines, not implementing them. Um, we have not um, come to that, and we hope we never will. Um, but uh, we have about 23% of our hospital beds in Kansas City occupied by COVID patients right now. Um, the benchmark that um, experts say is uh, cause for alarm is more than 10%. So we are still really in a point where um, we're, we're calling it this a surge. Um, we've been calling it the second wave since October, and we're not expecting it to get much better for at least another month. Um, we're thinking that um, that the echo of holiday travel um, has yet to hit us. Um, so my hospital, I was just looking every morning, I get um, an email from our chief medical officer. We had on Thursday morning, apparently we skipped the holiday weekend, um, 110 COVID patients in our hospital um, and 820 total. Um, vaccine is available, um, although uh, it's slower than everybody wants it to be. Um, so I um, was blessed to be vaccinated right before Christmas. Um, so I had my second shot last week. Um, I had a little bit of sore arm the, uh, the first few hours. That was really it. Um, no side effects at all. Um, and I think the person most relieved is actually my seven-year-old son who has really been terrified to let me leave the house and go to work. Um, even as I reassure him, mommy takes precautions and mommy wears a mask and mommy sees most of her patients over Zoom. And he looks at me suspiciously and says, well, if you're seeing him on Zoom, why can't you do it from the house? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, um, it's really been uh, a profound impact on, on our community and on my family and my colleagues. We are not used to taking um, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s off life support, um, but we're just seeing so many patients with strokes and heart attacks and respiratory failure that um, that really the virus has destroyed their lungs and even prolonged periods on heart-lung bypass is not enough for people to recover. So it's really, um, it's really been um, challenging here. And actually my colleagues, you know, it's not just the direct patient care, it's the fact that every hospital from here to Colorado and um, Omaha is full. So in Kansas City, we serve as a, um, a referral center for um, basically a four state area of um, Nebraska, Missouri, um, Kansas, um, and 
some of our patients will either come to us or they'll go to Denver, which is a 12-hour drive from here. Um, and the most heart-wrenching stories I've heard lately are um, when our stroke center gets a call and knows that we could help a patient who's at a small hospital in rural Kansas and we don't have a bed. Um, so. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those those stories. Uh, the one you mentioned about your son, that is a good question he asked, by the way. Uh, and I wonder, have you had to sort of quarantine yourself at home? Has that been something you've been managing throughout the year? Yeah, so um, what our hospital did in March is reassess every patient interaction, every staff member, who walks into a patient's room, who touches a patient, who, um, and, and for what purpose. Um, and uh, we transitioned most of the consult physicians um, to doing Zoom calls from even whether we were doing from them from home or from our offices at work. No one enters a COVID patient's room except the primary nurse and the primary physician unless there's a, a real need for um, that person to walk in the room and see the patient. Um, and that's... I mean, that's not been our standard practice. Um, you know, laying eyes and hands on the patient is part of the magic of medicine. Um, and on the one hand, we have figured out that maybe it's not as necessary as we thought. And on the other hand, um, it's just sort of a need to know, need to need to manage kind of situation. So um, there, there actually had to be changes to regulation to allow that to happen because um, previously Medicare would not pay for telemedicine even except for very rare circumstances, um, mostly for rural patients. Um, so we, I mean, when we closed the operating rooms and we started everybody doing Zoom calls, it was like basically in a week we did what our telemedicine team had planned for the next three years. Um, and wow. And we have discovered that there are some benefits, things you might not expect. So what if your mom is sick and you can't travel to her for whatever reason? So we can now include family members on Zoom family meetings from anywhere that they have internet. Mm -hmm. Now that's not everywhere, um, especially in rural Kansas and rural Missouri, actually right. broadband is not everywhere. Um, but, uh, and there's some irony that it's easier for my family members in London and California and Japan to participate in their loved one's care than it is for some of my families in rural, um, rural Kansas and Missouri. But that move to the telehealth, that's really striking. Yeah. Things that were theoretical, you know, five-year plan, whatever it was, and you, you shifted into it in, in three weeks time, I'm sure without, not without some bumps, but also yeah. It is what it had to be. Yeah, and and the reason we did that was also because of the PPE shortage. Um, so uh, so the assessment was about risk, but it was also to preserve PPE for um, for again sort of critical situations. Oh, 
we have um, the benefit today of having two scholars whose work spans a great time period. So we're going to take advantage of that today. And I actually want to, um, Alicia, since your book is is just coming out, The Poison Trials, Wonder Drugs, mm -hmm. Experiment, and the Battle for Authority in Renaissance Science. I'm wondering if we could, because we're going to talk about vaccines, vaccination today, yeah. but it kind of precedes that, which is fascinating. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that book and yeah. some of the themes that you see in there that are finding themselves attaching to the headlines that we're seeing yeah, every day? Absolutely. Well, first I have to show it to you. There it is. Oh, good. I love <laughs> I, it when um, authors do that. Thank you for doing that. I know. That. Well, I'm so excited. Yeah. It just came out like two weeks ago. So this is very new and very exciting. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I think in some ways, I, I actually had to rewrite the um, end of the introduction to this book because I got the page for, or the, not the page first, but the copy edits, which is the last time that an author can really make substantial changes to anything. Um, I got it in April when we had just gone into lockdown and we like didn't know much about COVID and it was just this confusing time. And I was finishing this book, which was about, had at its heart, the fear of poison. Um, so this book is about um, attempts to find antidotes to poison and doing so through testing on condemned criminals, but also other methods of testing. And so a lot of the questions at the heart are, you know, what counts as proof? How can we show that something is you know, scientific or not scientific? What's valid? Um, and there were so many of these questions that were just also swirling in the air just through all of the talk about COVID that I actually added a little section to the end of my introduction to draw some of these parallels directly. Um, so I think this, um, fear of hidden disease agents because at the time I'm writing about, which is the 16th century, poison was seen as the underlying cause for a lot of diseases, um, most prominently plague, which was the you know real heart of concern at the time, but also there was like an ever expanding number of diseases that um, that poison was seen as the heart of. And it's this hidden, you know, scary disease agent in the same way that a virus like COVID is. In fact, the um, origin of the word virus is a Latin word that means toxin. So there was a brief period of time where people thought viruses were actually the kind of toxin. So there is a link there as well. Um, yeah, so I, I think that there, I see a lot of parallels. Also, this like, hope to find a cure that's really just going to help this like desire for not necessarily a magic bullet, but something just an effective antidote that's going to really take care of this problem at hand. And that would have been, you know, the, the setting for the book then is before a time period that we would consider, that we would call science. Uh, right. I mean, so, you know, that... As how a, does power and authority work in, the, in a setting like that? And who gets to say if it's effective or not? Right. And that's something that's negotiation. So it's really a negotiation in this case between, on one hand, uh, po political authorities, so literally princes and you know, despotic mm. rulers, and they were usually, so I was looking at the series of trials I found um, on these condemned criminals and they were always attached to a powerful prince because they were the only ones who had the power to grant bodies for research in, in that kind of um, you know, toxic way. And then physicians on the other hand, and the physicians were only one of a panoply of practitioners. And although they really tried to present themselves as the 
elite and the most legitimate, they weren't always successful at that. Um, and then there are just a huge range of other practitioners, many of whom patients saw as just as authoritative as physicians. So um, I was looking at a set of uh, cases in which physicians are really trying to prove their superiority by writing thorough case reports on these experiments. So there are, these are really early experimental records and it's really a good century before the great experimental boom of the 17th century. And we think of you know the scientific mm -hmm. societies that developed and um, Francis Bacon and Robert Boyle and all of these big um, figures. But this is, this is um, techniques that are really resembling some mm. of the later experimental um, ideas that are much earlier um, and are, you know, trying to prove something that we, from our point of view, would look at as completely useless. So none of these cures for poison that they're testing, in our view, would probably be effective. But the method they were using to probe this and describe this um, mm. was very methodical. So the, so the method and then also sort of developing arguments or channels of power right. to allow someone to undertake something like exactly, that. Exactly, yes. And and using the method as a way to define yourself as a learned physician. So there was a long time before that, the idea that um, experimental methods were something that lower class practitioners did. They weren't reasons. They were you know just kind of trying things out. So this was starting to, starting to show that physicians could um, develop their own experiments that were more learned. Um, so that's one of my central ar arguments for the book, that physicians are trying to really directly create a learned experiment. And they're not just doing it in this case. There's other studies that have shown them trying to do this in other ways. But this is a, a very obvious way. Um, I, I want to stay with this, if it's OK with you, and just yeah. help us who are not up on our vaccine history. Could you say a little bit about when you would start to get the emergence of something that we would call today a vaccine or a process that we would call vaccination, just to lay in some of that historical groundwork? Yeah. Um, so before there was vaccination, there was something called inoculation or variolation, and that was related to smallpox in particular. Um, so in the early 18th century, there are a couple of different ways that reports of inoculation against smallpox came into Europe. And inoculation differs from vaccination in that you are actually using live smallpox matter to infect, deliberately infect the patient. So they actually, so it was done in two different ways. The most common way was um, you would take smallpox matter from a pus of someone who had smallpox, which I should say at the time was a completely debilitating disease that had somewhere between 20 to 30% uh, fatality rate. So it was way more fatal than COVID. Um, and the, um, the way that you would try to prevent smallpox, so th there was a case, this was a case in the, the practice going out in front of the theory. So they figured out that people who had had smallpox did not get it again. And that if you deliberately infected people with smallpox in a way that was um, through the arm rather than through the nose, that they would get a milder version and they wouldn't um, develop the full-blown smallpox. And the fatality was much, much, much lower. Occasionally, people did still die. Um, occasionally, you would start a smallpox epidemic just from variolation, but it was a safer way. Um, to, to do it. And it was certainly better than getting what they called natural smallpox. Um, but this really developed in um, 
Asia and Africa. So there is evidence from China from way back in the 10th century. There's um, the most direct influences from Turkey, which seems to have picked up the practice sometime in the 17th century. And then um, a British noblewoman named Mary Wortley Montague was married to the British ambassador to Turkey and spent time in Constantinople. Mm. And she saw the practice happen in Constantinople and um, had her son vaccinated in Constantinople, came back to London, um, had her daughter vaccinated there as, as a demonstration that this was safe, and also um, convinced the um, Princess of Wales, Caroline of Ansbach, who was the wife of the future King George II, convinced her to vaccinate her children or inoculate her children as well. So that was one sort of thread that it came to. Mm -hmm. The other was through an African slave in Boston named Onesimus, who was a slave to the Puritan preacher Cotton Mather. And he told Mather about um, this practice, which he had seen and, and which had, he had been inoculated himself, and it was widely practiced among his people. Um, and so he explained it as, as well. And Mather, during a smallpox epidemic in Boston, convinced the Boston physician to inoculate his children and then some or his son and and a few of his enslaved um slaves and then um yeah there's it was a big controversy i don't want to go on too yeah, long no. but yeah um but so the inoculation was sort of the first step towards okay. the later vaccination which um took place at the end of the 19th century well, Carla, let me bring you in on this. I, yeah. I had a um, chance to talk earlier last year uh, with John Barry, um, and we talked about the great influenza in 1918. I've talked with lots of people about that 1918. One of the things that really strikes me about the 1918-1919 pandemic is that how accustomed people were by that point to vaccination and do you correct me where I'm going astray yeah. here, but it seemed like that was such a great surprise because, and of course, technology, not only in medicine and science, but also electrification and mobility and everything else had changed so rapidly from the 1880s into the 19-teens right. that it was a, a kind of a great comeuppance to the medical authorities of the time that they couldn't vaccinate their way out of that situation, which to me speaks a lot about the late 19th century. And I wonder... Yeah if you don't have to accept that framing, but I find that that acceleration of the 19th into the 20th century around vaccine is really startling and interesting. Yeah, no, I actually like that framing a lot because I would say that, you know, smallpox is seen as really a unique case. Um, it, uh, the, um, the work of uh, Edward Jenner and, um, and the milkmaids um, in, uh, in English is quite famous with the substitution of cowpox for smallpox um, to make it much safer. Um, although uh, I will say that the last time we seriously considered using smallpox vaccine, using vaccinia um, in 2001-2002, when there was a lot of thinking about potentially it, um, it being used as a bioweapon, um, the decision not to deploy it was because it still has a one in a million mortality rate. And that is not something that we find acceptable anymore. But um, but I think of Pasteur's work in the 1840s and 1850s really starting to create um, vaccines for a number of, um, of 
infectious diseases, um, especially for animals um, because of its um, their critical value for agriculture. And by the 1870s, 1880s, a well-educated physician might decide to cook up a vaccine in their um, in their kitchen. Practically, um, it really was mm. a technology that was ex- adopted very widely, very quickly um, between about the 1870s and um, and 1900. Um, so much so that uh, that they developed vaccines for things like hay fever, which was thought to be related to microscopic um, uh, material that they weren't. 100% sure whether pollen was exactly alive or dead. It's a little bit like viruses mm-hmm. where uh, they they could, they they had an understanding about microscopic causes of disease, but um, but the details don't didn't quite uh, match the way that we think about it today. But so really um, a, a lot, the bar- barriers to entry in the vaccine world in uh, the 1870s, 1880s became very low and a lot of them did not work. Um, but mostly were not too harmful, um, but uh, a lot of them did. And diphtheria is uh, a critical area that I really think um, changed the experience of a wide number of people because it was a leading cause of death of children. Mm-hmm. And so when the New York um, City Health Department starts manufacturing diphtheria antitoxin, in the 1880s and 1890s, it's almost like polio in the 1950s. It just changes life for a generation of kids and parents and becomes a, a real proof that um, that scientific medicine maybe really does have a much clearer sense about what would be helpful to people. And there was a, a true crisis of confidence in the mid 19th century about medicine. So. Um, so this period from 1880 to 1920, I agree, is um, is where you really start to see scientific medicine prove itself. And vaccination is a big part of that, um, as well as um, the use of antitoxins and serums um, to protect against infectious diseases. Just a reminder to everyone, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking today about vaccines and vaccination and other topics with Carla Kearns and Alicia Rankin. Alicia, let's gossip about doctors for a second before we bring Carla back in on this. Um, Because we started talking about this a little bit earlier. What's the role of the medical practitioner in the 19th into the 20th century in this regard? Because I'm sort of curious, you know, not as Carla's saying, easy maybe to get a vaccine going or into the market, um, what is the impact of that on the growth and status of, of physicians? I think I'm talking here about the United States, but of course we can broaden yeah. that out. But that interrelation between the two, to me, has been fascinating to play out this year yeah. as well. And, and I'll introduce the term vaccine hesitancy, which is more of a neologism, I think, but that's connected somehow too. Like, who do you trust oh, yeah. to tell you to stick this thing in your arm and it's going to keep you or your child from getting sick. Alicia, I'd like to hear from you first on that and then we'll 
Dr. Carla. Oh yeah, um, yeah. I mean, that was a huge um, part of it. And I think, well, one interesting thing about vaccine history, which dates all the way back to inoculation, is how closely it was tied to physicians from the get-go. So even with uh, when inoculation was introduced into Europe and the Americas, um, it was usually a physician who did it, and the physicians were seen as the authority on that, and that transferred to vaccination. And to Carla's point about how quickly these um, new vaccines took, you know, took speed up speed from the 1870s, 1880s, um, even at the very beginning, when right after Jenner published his findings about the cowpox and smallpox vaccine in um, 1798, really, really quickly that spread across Europe and into the Americas. It was really interesting how quickly that was adopted and it became, and I think it was because there was this backstory of inoculation that was effective, but also very dangerous in many ways. And vaccination was so clearly an uh, you know, improvement of that, but it was tied to the medical profession, profession from the get-go and, and a way for the medical profession to really assert themselves even before scientific medicine. And it was one of the few wins that, that they had. Um, although there was, as, as you were alluding to vaccine hesitancy, there is also a long thread of that that went along with it. Well, we're sketching out a pretty good history here. We may as well keep going. So uh, let's bring it to the post-war period and some of the key changes we should be aware of either in those relationships we were just talking about between sort of the, the growth of medical profession and vaccination, but also just sort of the key issues in vaccination from, let's say, after World War II to the present. Carla, can you bring us some of that? And then we'll come back to Alicia on this. Yeah. So... Um I would say that that period from the 1880s to the 1930s, I would say, you get a lot of new vaccines and a lot of new um, medicines and a real appreciation um, for their value. And then at the same time, you also get this recognition, as you sort of hinted at, that um, maybe there are no magic bullets, mm -hmm. that um, just because we have um, a vaccine for tuberculosis, um, it's adopted in some countries, not in other countries, um, even to this day. Um, you get um, antibiotics, which are um, which are miraculous, but they don't stop the infections from happening. They just cure them afterwards. And it's less than two years um, from the first introduction of antibiotics to the first recognition of drug-resistant infections. Um, so uh, between tuberculosis, where they discovered that one antibiotic wasn't enough, we now use four, um, to, uh, to flu vaccine and other vaccines. Um, we, we don't always have a vaccine. Um, some of them were quite tricky to make. Um, polio, again, was, um, was devastating from the early 20th century to, um, to the 1950s. You know, the fact that we have a COVID vaccine after less than a year is incredible um, in the history of vaccinations. Um, but we, um, by the 1950s and 60s, we get um, first the Salk and then the Sabin vaccines for polio. We get vaccines for uh, rubella, measles, mumps, diseases that used to kill children. Um, mumps uh, is notorious for leaving um, men sterile. Um, rubella was notorious for causing terrible birth defects, babies born deaf and blind. Um, and so there's a real sea change 
um, in the um, mid 20th century. But some people would argue that medicine becomes a victim of its own success, that once um, those diseases decline in frequency, then the side effects of the vaccines become more important. So in the 1990s, we switched from the Sabin Live polio vaccine back to the killed vaccine, which had been the first vaccine in the US. And the reason we did it was because the only cases of polio actually seen causing paralysis in the United States by the 1990s were either imported from countries where it's endemic or were children who had the vaccine and the vaccine turned on them. Mm -hmm. And um, the virus reverted to its wild type dangerous form. And so, um, so those technology changes were part of that story of vaccine hesitancy in part coming out of a sense that it's not gonna be that bad, you'll be okay, um, infections are not such a big deal. And as soon as COVID started, um, I, I kept thinking about something called um, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis, SSPE. It's something I learned about in medical school in passing, but it's a circumstance in which the measles vac virus that you have as a child reactivates in your brain decades later, causes um, a form of, uh, of epilepsy that is recognizable and unique on EEG and is uniformly fatal. So, you know, maybe that childhood case of measles was not a big deal, but it killed you 50 years later. And so when folks like um, like Anthony Fauci talk about the fact that we don't know what the long term implications of this vaccine of this um, virus are. Right. We really don't. Right. Some viruses survive in your body um, forever. This idea of the Alicia, I want anything you want to react to in what Carla said that in the a very efficient history yeah. of vaccines since World War Two. But and particularly to this idea of the magic bullet, which. I think is actually pretty prevalent in the way that Americans and people in the West think about technology after World War II anyway, that we can just constitute some scientists together and if we have enough funds, we'll have the techno fix yeah. in short order. I, I don't know, Alicia, what do, what do you make of this, the, the magic bullet problem in vaccines? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, that came through really strongly, I think, in the development of the COVID vaccine. And even the way some of the politicians were talking about the COVID vaccine is like, yeah. oh, this is good. And, and now we have the one, vaccine. One in particular, one politician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, now we have it. And it's, you know, a long path, but we're still facing, you know, a long, unknown long path to, um, getting on top of the disease so it, you can't just flip a switch and i thought another thing carla said was really interesting um about the focus on children and past vaccine and one thing that i found very interesting in covid versus the history of vaccine is that so much of the history of the vaccine has been in um, vaccinating children and it's been focusing on childhood diseases and even with diseases like smallpox that didn't just affect children, just getting, you know, infant vaccinating literally infants. Um, and, you know, for now we're just trying to get everyone vaccinated. It's, it's, we can't vaccinate children yet because the vaccine's not approved for children. So it's a really different situation when you have something that is a new disease that no one has immunity to. So I think that's a really interesting difference between our current situation and some of the historical precedents. 
that's fascinating, that inversion. And uh, yeah. it makes me wonder also, and I think this is something you're expert in, is, is the way that parents have advocated yeah. um, for vaccination for children, and I guess more recently, maybe some against also, yeah. but the role of parents has been crucial, as you say, because vaccines yeah. have been aimed at that at that population. You see that differently here. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned the example of Mary Wortley Montague and um, Abigail Adams, Adams vaccinated her children, and it was generally seen as the role of the mother in particular to take care of her household in general in terms of medicine, but that meant vaccinating and inoculating children as well. So sort of her purview to try to um, get her children um, inoculated or later vaccinated. Um, and I think that in many cases, um, children were used demonstratively to vaccinate. So the sister of Napoleon Bonaparte, um, her name was Elisa Bonaparte. She was um, ruler of the province of Lucca, which was under French rule at the time. But she, after, she right after Jenner um, came out with his vaccine, she vaccinated her children to, as a demonstration that everyone should be vaccinated. And she also attempted to impose mandatory vaccination, but couldn't figure out how to mm. do it. Um, but she first vaccinated her children as a as an example. So you see this. And I think that I saw, I thought it was very interesting because you see some of that. And uh, so the um, scientist, Harriet Gibson, who was heading the Oxford lab um, that developed the AstraZeneca vaccine, her three adult children were vaccinated. I don't imagine that she was forcing them to, but they took it on themselves to join. They're all in their early 20s and they joined the clinical trial for the AstraZeneca vaccine. So it was like later echoes of that That's earlier. Yeah. So even adult children being enrolled yes. into this. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, it reminds me of the long history of um, auto experimentation. Oh yeah. Um, and and thinking about it as a demonstration of confidence. Mm -hmm. and we're seeing that very deliberately in um, in COVID vaccine now, yeah. where politicians are being mm -hmm. vaccinated publicly as a show of confidence. Yeah. I've heard a lot of speculation about including celebrities and athletes as a show of mm -hmm. confidence. Um, the um, the real desire to make sure that people of color are um, are shown early in um, in vaccination. So I think, you know, for you to vaccinate your children is an indication both of your responsibility, but also that you truly do trust this technology. I think the issue of trust is so important and it's just such a thread in the history of vaccination in general. When you don't have trust is when you run into problems and vaccine hesitancy. And, and that's like a, a inflection point throughout the long history of vaccination. Well, can we stay with this for a minute? Because, yeah. you know, the most of the news pieces that I've read about vaccines and vaccination this year, they do. Um, there's a gesture you somewhere in the piece to inequality and to minority communities, underserved communities um, who have memory, historical memory in their community. Uh, and Tuskegee is usually mentioned or indigenous groups are mentioned. And it's usually dropped. It's sort of like we kind of dropped in there as if the public really knows what that reference means. But can we linger with that for just for just a second? I mean, um, how vital is that historical memory? In those communities and how do we how do we measure that i mean how do we go in there and say yeah this is a reason that you know 
people in, in African-American communities and neighborhoods in America are not getting vaccinated at the same rates because there's a compounding problem, which is that they've also had poor access to public health. So it's hard for me to distinguish those those two. I just feel like the reporting has been, that hasn't helped me as much as I wanted to in, in this regard. I don't know if either or both of you want to take a pass at that question. So desegregation of the hospitals was triggered by the implementation of Medicare and Medicaid in 1966, which means that my dean of um, diversity at my medical school was born in a segregated hospital. Um, just, you know, when people talk about a history of, um, <laughs> people talk about a history of, uh, you know, long past abuses that go back, you know, 50 or 60 years, we have to recognize that people live through time too. And that that means that a lot of the patients that I care for have a lived direct experience of that kind of discrimination. Or if it didn't happen to them, it happened to their neighbor, or it happened to their parents, or it happened to their brother or sister. I mean, we're asking people we're, we're sort of assuming that um, that this is, um, you know, this is like holding a grudge for something that never happened to you. And that's mm -hmm. wrong. Cool. Historically, that's just that's just wrong. Um, these are communities with lived experience of segregation and discrimination in healthcare, And not that we have solved it. Um, we're still in a situation where mortality from covid is twice as high for African-Americans mortality from heart disease is um, in your uh, 50s and 60s is twice as high. Mortality from asthma in young children is twice as high. So, um, so they're also really contemporary reasons for people to be cautious. Um, I serve on a, a committee um, to, that advises our health department um, that has a number of pastors and other um, representatives from our Latino community and our African-American community. And they have really good questions. They say, you know, look, I heard that the vaccine causes sterility. And we say, well, I heard the virus causes sterility. So I get the vaccine um, if it were me. But, uh, but people need to hear from trusted sources. Um, and they need to know that, um, that their communities are being considered. Um, and that's not because they're being somehow irrational. It's because they're being completely rational about their experience and their community's experience. Alicia, I can bring you in on that too. Yeah, yeah, that was a beautiful description, Carla. Um, yeah, I think that just in looking back over the long arc of the history of vaccines, anytime you see vaccine hesitancy, there's usually a good reason why that's the case. Um, I mean, even before the horrific experiments on African-American populations in this country, there were, you know, periods of vaccine hesitancy in other areas that you completely understood where they came from. So there was, I mean, there is a huge class dimension in epidemics in general, and it's always the lower classes that suffer. And I mean, this is true in virtually any epidemic that you find that in, you know, we, we saw this a little bit in COVID that in the very first instance, everyone was getting sick and then it became clear it was only populations that were low income, that were you know, minority. And it was just, you know, the, the most vulnerable populations were the ones who were 
getting sick. And that really has um, repercussions going back into, you know, early, early history that, um, and it, it leads to distrust. So if you see the elite are the ones producing the vaccine, but they're not the ones who are getting quite as affected by it, then you know, there's understandable distrust mm-hmm. there. And, and I think that, you know, you have to kind of look at, at those relationships to really understand why there might be hesitancy. And and that's a, also a point maybe to work on them. I'm not a policy, health policy person at all, but I, I probably could speak to that better. But, um, but it really does seem like there is this inequity in health delivery versus who's affected. It, it strikes me, and this won't be surprising to anybody, um, that this is one of the cases where the humanities and the social sciences has a really crucial role to play. When we talk about risk communication, um, in some of the areas that I maybe know more about, let's say like natural hazards, so-called natural hazards, it, it's often treated, and it sounds like what you're both describing here, that people are gonna make a rational judgment. You hand them a flood map and they're gonna say, that's dangerous or it's not dangerous. And you can layer, you could say, well, they don't have as good of access to information because they come from a minority community, and that's true enough. But what's often missed is that their sense of what's safe or not safe may be rooted in Jim Crow. I mean, that history could go way back. And it, it strikes me that that's, and maybe it's already happening. I don't know, Carla, I'm going to bring you in on this first, but this kind of attachment of a deeper history here, history of exclusion or violence, segregation, absolutely has to be considered in any discussion we would have about public health generally, but about vaccines right now in the moment. Right. So um, so the committee that I'm working with um, points out that the first thing we did was distribute testing through CVS and Walgreens. And if you do a map of all the CVS and Walgreens in our city, it turns out that they've essentially redlined the um, the urban cores of both Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. Not, I mean, uh, you know, intentionally, unintentionally, it doesn't even matter. Um, our African-American pastors pointed out that if you wanted to get testing to our urban cores, then we really needed to do it deliberately. We really needed to think about churches and community centers and um, safety net clinics because um, Walgreens and CVS um, are more likely to be in better off communities. That's that's not a surprise. Um, and this sort of notion that that would be an equitable way of distribution, forget about who's insured and who's uninsured and all the rest of it. Um, is um, is really a failure to understand um, our landscape and our health landscape. Mind, folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Alicia Rankin and Carla Kearns here today, and I'm learning a lot today. And I hope it's okay with you both if we go another, okay, let's go a little longer if it's all right, because I still have a few questions. And um, Alicia, I want to ask you, um, you know, given what we've seen 
in this country since, well, for a long time now, but let's say since January 6th, or even going back to the, throughout the pandemic and the um, protest that we saw at various state capitals, like I'm thinking about Michigan here. Um, you know, we had the confluence of populism and anti-science. And the two are historically often quite close to each other, but the specific deployment of it for an electoral strategy I, I was surprising to me this year. Well, Trump will not be in office anymore, um, but this idea of a sort of a mass action, a militia action, a protest movement, um, going into 2021, I've heard a lot of reporting about that. Do you expect to see, or does history offer any guide how we might expect to see that in terms of anti-vaccination? Because well, oftentimes when I hear discussion of anti-vaccination these days, I think about um, parents who struggle with that and the autism diagnosis and then some famous anti-vaxxers who are, who are out there. I don't tend to think of the kinds of people that I saw at the Capitol building on January 6th, but I'm starting to think now maybe I should think about that. I I'm, I'm it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the what's interesting here is that the only vaccine crowds we've seen so far are people lining up to get vaccines. So, you know, what we've seen from Florida, you know, elderly populations having to sit in lawn chairs for hours while they're trying to wait in line for vaccines. Um, so, you know, the, the, what's been interesting is this parallel. We've had, we're having this conversation about vaccine hesitancy, but there's also the converse phenomenon of people who really want the vaccine not yet being able to get it. So I'm interested to see how that plays out. I mean, there is a long history of, you know, threatening mobs of anti-vaccinators. So there are, you know, in the 19th century, especially, I'm sure Carla knows plenty about this, but there are, you know, a number of um, anti-vaccine mobs, um, you know, Jenner was burnt in effigy in really? various um, British mobs. Yeah, there, especially in Britain, there are a bunch of like real riots in which um, both local health authorities, but also Jenner himself were burnt, burnt in effigy. Um, and it was really very much a working class um, kind of uprising to try to push back against compulsory vaccines, which uh, there was a law in Britain in 1853 that required vaccination of all infants um, that was very much pushed back against. And that goes back to mothers again. Yes. So now mothers are protecting their kids against the vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there actually it was um, the Milwaukee vaccine mm -hmm. riots were really interesting because they figured out that police would not um, go against women. So the mobs were often women. Um, so it was particularly German immigrant women, um, especially. Wow. It was just sort of a, you know, come out with potato mashers to go against the police. What is, there's a, is there a book about this in a Milwaukee? Um, there is articles. I don't know. Is there a book? I, I, I think I've just read articles. Yeah. All right. Any researchers listening? It sounds like there's space here for, for new literature. But I, let me just yeah. go a little bit further with this. Is it because, maybe it's not either or, but um, these are parents who are worried about the safety of the vaccine, and particularly as we've discussed, maybe the idea that the population in Britain or working class are being treated as test animals, or yeah. is it a sort of more general sort of populist, just like we don't like the government exercising rights that they've never exercised before? The two don't have to be. I think it's both. 
I, I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. And, and the interesting thing is that vaccine hesitancy goes down when there are epidemics, so for smallpox. Uh, there was vaccine hesitancy during the lulls where there really wasn't a smallpox epidemic. And then when there was an epidemic and people saw how bad it was, suddenly vaccine hesitancy dropped very precipitously. Um, so fear is another interesting element, which might play into COVID that, you know, we're also really worried about getting COVID. We see the repercussions. So I wonder how that will figure into vaccine hesitancy in particular um, for the COVID vaccine. So we know from the healthcare providers who are being offered the vaccine, um, two thirds are accepting it. Um, and then the data system that the government is using doesn't have enough fields to include why people are saying no when it's offered and they say no. Um, but the range of what you hear is some people are saying, I want to see how the other people do with it. Some have had COVID and they're not recommending vaccination within 90 days because they're not sure whether the vaccination will cause an, um, an immune response that's dangerous um, in folks. Um, there's also some sense that they're protected. There are some folks who are saying, um, I'm not as high risk as my parents. I want you to get to the next tier faster. Um, and, uh, and then there's sort of logistics, you know, you're offered the vaccine, but you're not going to be available at the right time to get your second shot. So you decide to hold off on getting your first shot until you, you can time it right, which speaks to that, that two vaccine. But um, that's what uh, we're seeing here is it's about two thirds of healthcare providers who are offered it or taking it. And that's true nationally, but um, nursing home staff, the, um, the acceptance is much lower. Um, and it speaks to a couple of things um, with intersectionality. You're talking about largely women of color who have, um, who may not have health insurance, who often have typically lousy benefits who've had a lot of trouble getting PPE in the setting of the pandemic. And um, my sense is that there's a real suspicion, you know, you care about my life now. Um, and so you're seeing um, uptake more like 40 or 50% in, um, in nursing home mm -hmm. staff, um, whereas hospital staff, it's more like two thirds. Talk about things that make historians go crazy. Yeah. Why? why don't they have the field on the floor? Oh but I guess yeah. there <laughs> so, may be questions about asking the question and I understand it, maybe some hesitancy there, but we 25 years from now, five minutes from now, 20 years from now, certainly people are going to want to know. I mean, you just gave an analysis of yeah. five different options there, which are each tantalizing in their own way. Well, yeah. and we need to know now so that we know how to, um, exactly. how to roll out different messaging yeah. for each one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so why why we are not collecting that data is beyond me, um, because you're wow. right. Uh, it's it's critically important today for figuring out how to increase uptake in um, in the rest of the um, the pandemic because we don't know what the herd immunity level is. Um, you know, I've heard numbers everywhere from seventy percent to ninety percent, but they're all guesses. Um, and it may vary from population to population and for that matter, from strain to strain. So it may be that the herd immunity level that you need for the, um, the UK strain and the other ones that are more, um, uh, more easily spread is higher. That's why you need 
95% or more for measles because one person with measles gives it to on average 18 unvaccinated people. Um, the first strains of COVID we were seeing, it was on the order of two to three. But if this new one is five to 10, that's a totally different situation. Yeah. Right. And every all the public health interventions, and I do notice people now, at least where I live in New Jersey, they seem to try to want to be standing six feet apart and, and the plexiglass is up and the various different PPE interventions are now sort of acculturated. People are more or less going along with it, maybe different in Kansas, but that's the case here in Jersey and I think in Pennsylvania and from what I've witnessed in Massachusetts. Um, but if like you said, if that, um, you know, if the if the strain is different and, and the infection rate is going to be different, then what we've already gotten used to is going to is itself going to have to change. I I want to pivot with that to to a, a follow up question. Alicia, I want to ask you this first. I'm talking with Tara Haley last week and uh, Maya Goldenberg about this because we were talking about the Pew Research numbers on hesitancy, mm -hmm. and and they um, it's a really great discussion and they were talking about well you know that's a snapshot in time. And so people's confidence, um, and it can go both ways, I suppose, but people's confidence will be a moving target throughout the year. This is an incredibly complex yeah. thing to figure out. And I don't know, just again, from your research or any of your you know, things you keep up with on this, what kind of historical models do we have to think about how public confidence will move? What kind of events will move it? I mean, from a common sense perspective, you would say, well, if fewer people are getting it, then more people might be um, willing to take the vaccine, but I've also heard the argument just the opposite. Yeah. That's no, less out there. I don't need the vaccine as much. Why do I want to? And many other permutations as well. I don't know, Alicia, can you make some sense of that? Yeah, it's um, it's a really good question. And as a historian, like I'm trained to think about the past and not <laughs> predict, but I do know from past um, you know, vaccination experiences that the public trust tends to go up um, when it's clearly affordable. So, you know, in past events, if there's no financial repercussions and it's free, that tends to increase, um, you know, vaccine uptake, certainly. And then um, I think the public trust element is crucial to that. So finding ways to increase trust. How, and I don't know that we figured out how to do that in any, I mean, I think that's been a problem that's perplexed. Um, you know, health policy people and physicians for centuries now of how to increase for people who are distrustful of the process. How do you really increase that? Um, and I mean, this this idea of learning by example is effective in certain populations. So the there is evidence that, um, for example, when Mary Wortley Montague had her children vaccinated, that people in the elite, you know, British sphere then followed suit because they were following her example. And I don't know what evidence there is for replication in, in other areas. But um, but I think that, again, coming back to the trust issue, I think that's just uh, the key. And I don't know that, that Carla, you may have more examples, um, but I don't know that there's been a solution to that problem. I don't think there has been. I do think that, um, that again, what, what I'm hearing from the folks who are planning um, are we have to get all the football players and the rappers and the um, yeah. the other athletes. Um, but I'm also thinking about um, the polio eradication campaign yeah. So or um, or the work of Paul Farmer and others. So one of the things is, 
that um, if you implement only a COVID program and you say, well, if you have something else, that's not our problem, that also tends to decrease um, access. One of our uh, listeners pointed out universal healthcare access is really key. Um, and so it's there are so many people um, who uh, who report back that um, that when they go to Pakistan to um, to try to eradicate the last tiny fraction of the world's polio cases, the moms invariably say, "We don't have polio. What are you going to do about X, Y, or Z health crisis that my family is facing?" Yeah. And um, Paul Farmer and his um, his team talk about the fact that that's why they don't do single disease anything. Um, when they come to um, poor communities to work with people, they say, you know, we want to hear from you what your problems are and address them. Well, um, we're almost up on time and I don't want to abuse the goodwill of my guests too much, but I, I actually do want to ask one more question. We'll get a quick round in and I'll, I'll let you go. And I, I it's to you, Carla, first. Um, I think I'm absolutely convinced now that I want a physician who's also a social scientist. And, and, I, and I, I'm wondering sort of in your own practice, it might be hard for you to generalize, but this year particularly, how has your knowledge of history and the history of health policy shaped your, your life as a practitioner? So um, I was supposed to give grand rounds on um, something else in March at my hospital. And I called the person in charge and I said, would you like me to talk about the ethics of epidemics? <laughs> and they said, please. Um, and so um, my my sort of recognition of, of the structure of healthcare and the structural factors um, allow me to have conversations with policy folks, but also with, um, with vulnerable communities that is different um, so when I get um, when I get questions and concern and pushback and um, doctor, um, you know, how do I know that this is safe? I listen to why they are asking that question because it really um, that's how I know how to answer it. Um, and knowing what the history of discrimination in healthcare is puts me in a position to respond um, with empathy and with understanding of where those questions are coming from that I try to instill in my um, my colleagues and my students, but they're all, not all gonna become historians or social scientists. Um, and so thinking about where we can strategically um, ensure that those understandings come into policy and come into practice. Hmm. Alicia, I'm going to give you the last word. Any anything we didn't touch on, you want to, but I also like to know um, since you got the first review of your book out, you're free now to talk about your next project. That's the <laughs> that's the rule. So okay. Well, actually, I wanted to um, follow up on what Carlo was saying sure. and just say that um, I am so excited that Alondra Nelson, who's oh. a um, STS person is going to join Biden's um, office yeah. OSCP. Um, yeah, right. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. So I think like to your point about it being important to have um, historians and sociologies and humanities people involved in science policy, we will now in the next um, the next government, which is really, really exciting. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. And tomorrow we'll be talking to historian 
of science, and he's actually, I think I can call him a historian of disaster, uh, Zachary Loeb, who's working on a project about Y2K, and he's written uh, really provocative new stuff about the connection between Y2K and public trust and COVID. So I'm going to have Zach Loeb on tomorrow. We'll talk about that. I want to thank my guests today, Alicia Rankin and Carla Kearns. Thank you both so much for um, this just great uh, discussion that we had today about vaccine, past, present, and future as well.